So welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I'm your host, Tatiana Kosesanov, and I'm absolutely delighted to have as my guest this week, Rachel Gotto. Rachel Gotto is, like myself, a rapid transformational hypnotherapist and has an absolute amazing story to tell. And I'm very, very honored that she's uh, agreed to come on the show and share it with us. She's had an incredibly dramatic life story, a story that's full of trauma, tragedy, human loss, but it's also a story of survival. It's a story of overcoming challenge and struggle with tenacity and coming out with an amazing amount of learning. And I'm very, very glad that Rachel has agreed to come on the show and share that with you. It's an emotional rags to riches story. Rachel's a lovely lady, a lover of life, warm and vibrant, and very excited to be alive, and she'll tell us all about that. And most of all, she's a marvelous therapist and has enormous empathy for her clients and specializes in helping clients with trauma. You'll understand why once we get to hear a bit of her story. But first of all, Rachel, I just want to say, is it beautiful in Cork? Um, you're close to Cork, is that correct? In Ireland? I'm in Galway. Oh, you're in Galway. I'm so yeah. sorry. I misunderstood. Well, it just shows you how often I've been to Ireland, something I have to correct very quickly. <laughs> you have to come and visit me. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful weather here in London. I hope that you're experiencing a bit of the same. We're having a little bit of the sun poke through the clouds and it's spring. So I'm excited and I'm in a great mood today. It's very hard to get depressed when the sun's shining, isn't it? Absolutely. It's the sunshine vitamin that we need all the time. Absolutely. Vitamin D and vitamin good feelings. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Rachel, um, just so that the viewers um, or the listeners rather get to get to know a little bit about you, um, we met as because uh, we actually trained together for our tra rapid transformational therapy, um, and you told me a little bit of your story then, and I was absolutely I was just amazed um, and. I can honestly say in the last year um, that we've that we've known each other, you've you've just taken that on completely and taken it to extremes. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? I, I have heard through other channels that it has something to do with a pair of cowboy boots. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? I know, that's my opening <laughs> line. I love it. It's such an exciting opening liner, isn't it? It's a great and one. Well, so I'm why don't you tell us what it is? <laughs> I'm going to tell you that I learned to walk in a pair of cowboy boots. And this is entirely true. I have a mad story to tell you and to impart. And it's a story of discovery. It's a story of immense pain. And it's a story of immense loss. But at the same time, why I'm sharing it is because at the end of the day, it offers hope. It offers an avenue to people who feel that maybe their lives are stilted and held in a place because they don't have any choice. They don't have a future, a horizon or an avenue to go down. So to go back to the cowboy boots, I was condemned to the end of my life in my late 30s. I was just diagnosed with a benign brain tumor that left me without hope. I trawled hospitals and doctors' surgeries and neuro neurologists all the way through the British Isles and particularly in London, meeting neurological teams and have them put my scans up um, 
to be looked at only to have them taken down again and sh their heads shaken saying no if we operate you won't survive the surgery so this was a really immensely tragic and devastating time for me because I had just lost my husband in a tragic accident of which I was present at and pregnant with our daughter so I had had my daughter in the most awful circumstances. I was bereft and broken and devastated and had to find a way to parent in an, an emotional dearth. That's the only word I can say. And my darling daughter had her own health issues and lost the sight in one of her eyes. So life hadn't even begun to even even out for me. And I was found unconscious. And being found unconscious was something that changed my life irrevocably, irrevocably because when I got to the hospital, when I was examined, they found the most enormous ABM, that is an arterial venous malformation. It's a benign overgrowth in the brain. I had six extra feeding arteries and six extra draining veins. I was a walking time bomb. I'd already had small bleeds, but basically I was an aneurysm waiting to burst. And the doctors were not hopeful. They told me it was impossible to operate and that I had to go home and write my will and put my affairs in order. As I had just done for my husband, I did them. And so devastating. I was furious. I was raging. I just really didn't know where to turn. The only thing I knew to do was to keep knocking on doors. And that's exactly what I did with a girlfriend and two and few family members. And there were a lot of cigarettes smoked and a lot of gins and tonics had, I can tell you, when we were reviewing those hospitals because the door kept closing. I'm so sorry. Go home and write your will. I wasn't content to do that, Tatiana. I wasn't content to live out the diagnosis that was offered me. So I kept looking and eventually I found the Barra Institute in Arizona and they recommended somebody in the UK. And I did find a most phenomenal surgeon called Richard Nelson in the French Air Hospital in Bristol. And he wrote me, I never met him before any surgery. And he wrote me and he said, here are your chances. And I just read them and they were not very good statistics. And then he said, and if you do survive, I need to tell you that you're going to be paralyzed for the rest of your days. You will not be able to come out of this surgery unaffected. So please make your choices and write back to me and tell me what you'd like. Now, that's a very unusual letter to receive for anybody. And I remember looking at that letter and thinking, well, this is really a no-brainer, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> I literally decided, okay, is it better for me to die now or wait two years and die while Nicola is a little bit older to remember me? She was quite young. And I decided rather go for it. And that's really who I am as a person. I live life to the full, always have done. And even in my childhood, which was very traumatic, even in the loss of my brother, so many tragedies, I've always lived the experience to the full. And I think this is what I was choosing to do intuitively. I was choosing to die fully or I was choosing to live fully. And this is something I really think is so important that we convey to people, is to inhabit your life to the full. This is what we're here for. Death is not a failure, and I need to tell you this, because it is something that does happen in our lives. Absolutely, 100% is going to happen. When it happens, we don't know. But you can choose to live this to the full. Living and dying are really the same things. It's about inhabiting your body naturally with who you are, who you're born to be. Don't apologize for who you are in any shape or form. You are a biological entity, a unique entity that is you. 
and live that and be proud of it in any way you possibly can because you have the choice ultimately. So this is really what I'm getting at is I ultimately had the choice and I took a choice. It wasn't something that I kind of went half-hearted. I said, I'm going to do it this way. And that's exactly what I did. But I did it in my way because I said, I will come in January after Christmas because I will have my last Christmas if it's to be with my daughter and my family. So I was living it my way. I was doing it my way. And at the same time, I was honoring the whole process. I was giving myself time to process that possibly this was the last time. Possibly this was my last experience. And at the same time, I had a vision somewhere out there which was creating and manifesting a future that I dearly wanted, which was to stand in front of my daughter as she grew and to be able to really enjoy and walk alongside her on her journey, separate to mine. So I'd sort of got two thought processes going on. And when I went for the surgery, it was really quite something I, I was interested in. And I was like somebody outside of my own body watching myself. And I walked into the hospital, by the way, in these cowboy boots. And I need to tell you that these cowboy boots are part of my story. Anytime anything tragic happened to me, I went out and bought shoes. So, so you and every other woman out there, yeah, I think. Exactly. <laughs> so I got this really amazing pair of cowboy boots in Russell and Bromley in London after a hospital visit that had turned me down. And I love them. They were really just the coolest pair of boots. So they were my vehicle for walking into that hospital. And that walk into the hospital, I actually did alone. I was delivered to the hospital. I put myself in there. And this was a journey that I undertook, I think, really subconsciously alone. I was very aware that we're born alone and we die alone. And that's not a miserable interpretation. This is really what we need to do. We need to consolidate ourselves and take really the path for ourselves. Be solid in yourself. Take it and enjoy it and have your own control. Have your, your say the way you need it to be. So that's what I did. And, um, I sort of walked into the operating theater with a huge team waiting for me. And um, I sort of glibly said, I hope those tanks are full because um, black humor gets you through a hell of a lot. And um, I sort of said, you know, pointing out that, excuse me, I hope there's gas in those tanks because I think I'm going to need it. And I do not want to know what you're going to do to my brain today. And everybody has sort of nervous laugh and it was right. Come on then, let's get to it. I was calm. I was incredibly calm. I was ready for this. I had prepared myself, but the process of preparing myself had left me feeling incredibly calm. I was in my body. I was ready for what was about to occur. So how did you actually manage to, to attain that calmness? Were you following a specific practice or was it just, just a mindset thing? Um, you know, how, how did you get to that point of prepare? How did you prepare? How does one prepare for something like that? You're walking into a hospital, you know that you may never walk out ever again, you know, um, not even alive, let alone on your own two feet. I think it's to do with going back to my true nature, to get in touch with it, all I can uh, uh, you know, get, get you to envisage is that I was breathing into my cells. I was breathing into who I was. And I was trusting myself to know that I was doing it the way that was the right way. I, it was almost like a birth. You know, we don't know how to be born. 
Um, it's an intelligence, an innate intelligence that we have. And I look at myself now and I can see myself at the distance. I just followed my wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that to sound clever. I mean, it's just that I knew what to do. I was calm. I knew that the next step was just one step in front of the other. I knew it wasn't to allow my mind to expand and to go, what if? I knew it was to really contain my mind and become mindful. And mindful of my true nature. And I could now, just the very moment, get in touch with who I was, that essence that day. That was somebody who was actually standing there with their arms out, embracing the unknown, the unfamiliar. And that's a, that, I'm really proud of myself for that because I was quite young. And I, I think it's because I was stripped back to basics. I was stripped back to, there was no wall paint and lipstick and powder and, and party frocks. I was there in front of nature, my life, my essence, my energy of what was there of it that day. And that's all I had. Um, I had myself. And I handed myself over as well to the wisdom of the people who were going to care for me, whatever the outcome was going to be. Trust. Um, So I think if I want to distill it, I think I'd like to use the word trust. Because I think this is a super important message. I mean, there are unfortunately so many people who get the most awful diagnoses. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very much a believer of Deepak Chopra's um, um, saying that, that, you know, believe the diagnosis, but don't believe the prognosis. But that diagnosis can be totally devastating. And, you know, it's so important for people to understand what, what um, tools they can use, what resources they can tap within themselves even if you're going down the road of conventional medicine and putting your hands, um, your, your body in the hands of, a, of another person in the same way that you did, that, that there's, still a, there's still a spiritual part of this in order to, to get you through it, even if it's just to get you through walking through the door, you know. So I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that. So you're in a hospital, you're handing over your, your life to these people, um, and where did it go from there? all good obviously you're sitting opposite us but what was the journey it the journey I know very little about it until much later in the day the surgery uh from memory was about 15 and a half hours wow. so you know major neurosurgery my mum's uh description of the surgeon coming into her halfway through the surgery to give her an update she said he was a white shadow of a man so the concentration they must have is phenomenal the you know the 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 teamwork they have is phenomenal but I didn't know anything about it I know now that they couldn't wake me up they couldn't bring me around there was something terribly wrong so they put me back in the CT scanner and sadly and unfortunately I'd started to have an intracranial bleed a major intracranial bleed and I was ebbing Now, what's really interesting about that is I had no idea about what was going on. I must have been semi-conscious, unconscious, but not aware, and they couldn't rouse me enough. So you can see what sort of neurological position is going on. They're wondering, am I going to manage anything? So they had decided that they were going to open me up again. And in order to have consent, somebody had to tell me, and I heard a female voice saying, Rachel, we have to operate again. Wherever it came from, I still hear those words to this day. 
Now, I couldn't respond. I suddenly became aware I was dying. I could feel my life energy falling out of my body. I could feel myself going. I didn't know how to tell them that I would not survive another surgery, that I could not be touched. I was so weak. And I fought so hard. I can't tell you the strength, the what I had to summon up enough strength to get out some word and all I could think of was don't and I remember whispering don't and I was heard now of course I learned this all later on but I was heard and that did not constitute his consent when I said don't so they had a quick rethink had another look in the CT scanner and turned around to my mum and I think my brothers and said look okay We're going to give her an hour, but she's bleeding very badly and she's not really going to do very well and she will die very soon if we don't do something. I know nothing else about it consciously. All I know is that my phenomenal brain set to work very quickly and I managed to stop that intracranial bleed pretty quickly and even more interestingly, I absorbed that clot. That's really very amazing because often actually the, even once the bleeding is stopped, it's, it's, it's what's left behind that can do a lot of damage. Exactly. And Tatiana, that's the exciting part about it. So I wasn't operating consciously. All, all I was operating on was the survival instinct, the subconscious brain, but my subconscious brain went to work really, really quickly. And it improved my condition within hours. I was still um, in in the CT scanner and I was still being monitored, but I was in intensive care. I had nine lines coming out of me, but I stabilized. And I think the surgeon must have gone, thank bloody God for that, because I can go home and have a cup of tea. Because (laughs) Probably a stiff drink, actually. (laughs) (laughs) He was on tender hooks because it was a major project. This was a long time ago. We're talking, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, uh, 19... I'll tell you in a minute, 2006. So, you know, this was major surgery for them. So for him, it was a big thing. And for me, obviously, it was a big thing. So I didn't know much about it then for quite some time. I didn't know anything about it for days. And then I came around and everything was upside down. I just remember all everything I was upside down everybody else was upside down I was looking at people upside down all the time and I think I was so sick I never really registered it and I didn't register anything I was on a lot of phenobarbitone I was on a lot of morphine I was on enormous amounts of anti-epilepsy drugs and anything to keep my brain from going crazy because brain trauma from neurosurgery is massive the brain is a very small organ and it gets inflamed and it's very very difficult to keep it calm after neurosurgery so I woke up one day anyway when things had got a little bit better and I tried to turn over and nothing happened. And I tried to turn over again and nothing happened. And my eyes would begin to open at this point. They'd been very swollen and closed. And I literally kept trying to turn and kept trying to move and it didn't register. I was paralyzed. The import of that as it slowly dawned on me alone in the hospital bed was absolutely unbelievably devastating it was more devastating than an awful lot of things 
it was the loss of my freedom. It was the loss of my choice. It was the loss of my future. It was the loss of so much. It was a massive impact of grief that suddenly stole itself into my mind and my body and my brain and my life. Who was I now? I hadn't actually budgeted for the paralysis. I budgeted for not being around. I budgeted for many things, but not paralysis. I could not accept it. It's an interesting way that our brains work, that we have this kind of negativity bias, because, I mean, one would think that you wake up and you think, oh, thank God, I'm actually alive. But no, I mean, you're just very, very focused on, on yeah, as you said, you know, you, you had kind of budgeted for the worst case scenario, but not the second case, worst case. You know? mm. um, so where did it go from there? How did you deal with that? That must have absolutely been, I mean, I don't think anyone can imagine what that's like who hasn't actually been through it. Well, it is interesting to look back at it, Tatiana, because when I say I didn't budget it, you're absolutely right. I really had only figured in that, you know, I was writing my will and my funeral. I hadn't actually thought about how would I cope if I survived and I couldn't move. So it really was a psychological letting in of the reality. And again, our brains are very clever. We don't allow ourselves to have the full impact of a trauma it's like um, ABS breaking. It comes in slowly in sort of a staccato sort of way. So I was pretty flattened. Um, I was devastated because I was cross. I was angry that I had made the choice to have the surgery. I had, you know, I, I just really couldn't get a handle on now I'm bloody well alive but now I've got to learn to do this now. So there was a huge period of time where I was in a kaleidoscopic sort of turmoil in my mind. I, I was a very proud person and I was incredibly proud of my independence. And that was gone. My freedom was gone. I could barely feed myself. Incidentally, I was paralyzed entirely down the left-hand side of my body Surgery had more or less destroyed my right arm, and I was left-handed. So overnight, not only had I lost my freedom, I had to rewire a whole circuit. A whole circuit board needed to be fixed. And I didn't have the tools at the time. I hadn't been prepared. I didn't know anything about neuroplasticity or anything about my mind. All I knew is that my freedom was gone, and I felt really boring and empty and lonely. And like somebody who's been thrown in a dustbin. Um, so it took me weeks to really get a handle on what had happened. And it wasn't really until I was moved to the brain injury unit, the bureau in Bristol, that I really began to take stock because I had a little bit more normality. I wasn't in the high dependency unit. I wasn't in intensive care. I was moved into an area which is to do with convalescence and and a lot of OT and physiotherapy. But nobody, it's interesting, I wasn't given hope. I was told that this is the way it is, and we're going to do our best for you, but you need to prepare for life as a dependent person. You need to prepare for life in a wheelchair. And in the first few weeks, I was still reeling from it, but there was a day when my carer, my specific carer, wheeled me to the petrol station, and I'm ashamed to tell you I still smoked at that time. I had very little else left, and um, I still smoked. So she was wheeling me down to the petrol station to get a cigarette so she could hold it up to my mouth. How mad is that? And um, 
I couldn't see over the counter at the petrol station and I was staring at the front of the counter and the person was trying to lean over and talk to me and I remember being angry and I remember saying no absolutely no Rachel no not having this and I loved that moment because at the time it didn't mean much to me but what that was about was I was regrouping I was beginning to becoming whole again. I had a lot of medication in me, but I was finding my spirit again. My spirit was beginning to surface. It was beginning to grow and it was beginning to assert itself. And I made a pact on the way back. No, this is not going to be my life. I will lead this the way I plan it. And I will make a vision and a future and determine how I lead my life from now on. And that began my recovery process. I'll tell you a funny story, which is just short, but in OT, they decided I needed to learn how to cook. And I was given all the implements and tools for a one-handed wheelchair-bound person to cook a stir fry. (laughs) It is really the most challenging thing to do, to cook a stir fry with one arm that's not working very well, and that's all you've got. You've got your mouth and you've got a piece of an arm. It took me, I can't remember, I think it was something like three hours to chop, prepare, veg and cook it and actually have it table ready. And I was thinking to myself, I would be beautifully skinny um, if I had to cook that way all the time. There, <laughs> there wouldn't be an awful lot of nutrition going into me. So that was another factor as well. I was thinking, no, this can't be the way. There has to be another way. And so I set about exploring in my mind in, in, in a very, you know, juvenile sort of way of how can I get around this? And one way I got around it was I started to fight back and I managed to get myself to be able to prop myself in the corner of my bedroom in the brain injury unit. I had one leg and very little balance, but I would prop myself up in the corner because basically that was me choosing my way to do things. This was me choosing another way. I had started to regain a tiny, tiny bit of use of my leg. One day my toe flicked and I didn't see it and I didn't experience it, but somebody saw it. And that gave me also a hope and a drive and a determination to rewire everything, to start working on myself. And I set into that task with determination, like somebody starting a job. I did it day in, day out. And at the weekends when there was no one around, I stared at my leg, I stared at my arm, I stared at everything and willed it to move. Now, what I didn't know was that I was doing a sort of a primitive neuro rewiring. I was working on neuroplasticity intuitively. Mm-hmm. I was connecting up pathways that had been axed and damaged and scarred and ruined. But I was starting to rewire my brain, rewire my connections into my limbs and this so is just if I can just um for the listeners who are listening who may not know what the term neuroplasticity means that's actually a fairly newly f- discovered phenomenon that the, the brain is capable of actually making new connections um that you can actually make new brain connections even when old ones have been destroyed um, this wasn't known before. We all, always used to think that, that we came with a with a, a lump of brain and, and that was it and it was absolutely immutable and unchangeable, but that's absolutely not the case. So you actually instinctively knew this, um, as I think all of us sort of instinctively know a lot of things that we have forgotten that we actually know and were rewiring your brain from, from the inside. So carry on, tell us more. Mm. I was doing this intuitively and it it was an incredibly long process. I never gave up. 
I was making my life work. I wasn't, I didn't want to sit there every day and wait for some specialist to come in. I was in a mad hurry to get out there and live life again. I was in an enormous hurry because I had decided at that petrol station that no, this was not my future. I was creating a different future. So I set to work with diligence, with tenacity, with, with courage and bravery and with purpose. And this is what, again, I think is really, really important for people who are suffering and needing a bit of help and hope to overcome obstacles, put purpose and tenacity and courage and bravery into your story. Whatever your story is, your story can be altered by your, your direction, your determination and your courage and your power. And that's exactly what I was doing in my infancy in my recovery process was I was determining a, a future for myself. And even if I hadn't to survive Tatiana, I was doing it my way. I was taking my power back. Mm. I was not a victim to my experience. And we're all about empowerment on this, on this show, absolutely. So that would be your word of advice then for, for people who are in a similar situation, because, you know, not everybody has that incredible tenacity and will. I mean, some of us are a little bit more fragile. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very easy to say, buck up, you know, uh, mm. see the bright side. And, you know, when, when you're feeling down and miserable and somebody says that to you, you just want to clip them around the ear hole, you know. So how do you, you know, what would be your tip for somebody who perhaps is isn't innately um, that brave and courageous, where, where can they draw on that strength from? What, what little things, what little tips could you give them to help them actually go on that path of, of, of empowering themselves and getting courage? Mm. Well, first of all, I just want to express that I have complete empathy for people who are in the depths. It's, it's probably really good to hear my voice today and hear the vibrancy and the positivity and all of those attributes that I have encompassed in my life today I haven't forgotten how it is to be in your boots to be in the bottom of your cowboy boots for want of a better expression <laughs> so what I would say to you if today you are wondering how on earth do I get my life to a place which feels better for me First of all, what I would say to you is go to ground first. You don't need to be dramatic in the first few weeks and months. What you need to do is regroup, go to ground, store your energy, allow yourself to build up inside slowly. You need to do nothing when there's trauma and tragedy apart from just let your true nature protect you and help you survive for now. That is so important because there's nothing to be done in the first instance. Mind yourself. And somebody used to say to me, look after yourself. I didn't know what that meant because I didn't have the emotional connections to understand what I know what it means now. What that means is go to ground, be quiet, just stay still, rest, recuperate, stay quiet, allow people in, allow people to nurture and care for you if you have that. If you don't, just stay quiet. And then when you've sort of done a little bit of that processing around, just gently look around you from where you're at and just find one thing that you feel would make you feel a little bit better today. One thing, make it simple, make it gentle, make it careful. And if it's so tiny, don't feel it's tiny. It's one step 
along the way. It's one foot slightly in front of the other. And if you just allow yourself one tiny little movement each time, don't judge it, don't ask for anything back, but just do that. Keep your mind close and keep mindful. And the other thing is there's no harm in dreaming. And we all have an imagination. You've got an imagination. You can, if I tell you to imagine a bright sunny day, immediately into your subconscious mind, you get this lovely image. Now, what I'm telling you to do is create an image that soothes you and gives you hope. Pick something maybe from your childhood if you can't remember in the moment. Pick something that used to make you feel comforted and secure and get that image and grow it in your mind and repeat it. Our brain works well, I know now, on repetition. So create that image. Create it like a, a little bit of a collage book and then try and fit some emotions and feelings to that picture. Try and recreate an emotion or a feeling that's positive for you. Maybe you need to look back to the past. And what I'm asking you to do and suggesting you do is to build some kind of emotional imagery in your mind that suits you and soothes you and has a vision for your future because nothing does stay the same forever. Everything changes. I used to hate it when people told me, you know, time heals, time passes. It is true. So while you're in it, it doesn't feel like that. But just create that vision of the future and just gently and calmly do little things, small things. And challenge yourself then when you become a little bit stronger. Challenge yourself to find that strength to go out the door today. Find that strength to use your voice. Find that strength to change one thing about yourself because small change snowballs into big change. So treat yourself gently, do it small and create a vision, a gentle vision, and the emotions and feelings around a vision. And believe me, if you can achieve that, you're already on the road to changing your life, your reality, and your future. You can do it. There's no doubt about it. If I can do it, you absolutely can. Use the tools that you have been given as a child. And the other thing is, is that if you can just imagine that the universe is never ever conspiring against you it intuitively wants to work with you so if you can just allow yourself to open up to the possibility that life will be better easier or different whatever it works for you that's enough for today you're on the road that's a wonderful message, a wonderful message, very inspiring and very, very moving. And, um, and one I think that, that everybody can actually kind of really understand at a, at a, on a very deep level. Um, so to go back to your story, you, how long did it take you to actually get to the point where, I mean, for those of our uh, listeners who can't see Rachel, first of all, she's absolutely gorgeous. Um, but secondly, <laughs> she's also fully, fully mobile. I mean, you, to look at you, you would never know that there had ever been anything. How long did that take? In total years, it was incremental. Mm -hmm. um, I gained the use of my leg relatively quickly. Within six months, 
I actually was walking reasonably well. Um, I had a role. I had weakness. It was the rest of my body that took its time. But interestingly, another thing that I can reflect on now is I actually put more energy into recovering my leg than I did everywhere else because I was desperate to have freedom. Mm-hmm. So I annexed probably the neurons and the neuroplasticity that was needed for the rest of my body to recover. It came into line later. And so my, my arm and my hand was years. I worked at it for years, but I, I did it my way. I didn't actually have neurophysiotherapy after the first six months. I did it all myself. Wow, that's amazing. It is amazing. And now to look at me, if, if you could see me now, I'm, I'm lifting my left hand and I have relatively good use of it. I was left-handed and now right-handed. So that, had to, that was another learning process. I have good use of my left hand now. But do you know, it's really interesting. Somebody said to me recently, they said, oh, you could gain more use of that if you, if you really worked at it. And I thought about it and I thought about it for a little while and I was thinking... Yeah, I could. I could definitely put more work into it, particularly as I work with the subconscious mind now and I understand fully what I could purposely create. And I was really fascinated to find out that I didn't want it to get any better. And so that was an interesting discovery for me because I wanted to know, why don't you want your left hand to be better? Why don't you want it to be functional? And the answer that came back from deep inside me, which I kind of love really, well, I'm kind of fond of it now. Um, I kind of like, I used to call it my bad arm. And I stopped doing that when um, my sister-in-law point, pointed it out to me. She said, what's bad about it? And it was really good information for me. So I stopped calling it my bad arm. And it is now my left arm. And actually, I love my left arm the way it is. It reminds me of where I've come from. It reminds me of how fantastic the body is in recovery, how fantastic we have to innately recover ourselves. So I kind of like it. And I think I'm going to call it my talisman, my, my little good luck charm, because it does serve to remind me I have come a long way and I'm excited about life. I'm excited about being alive. I don't have any medication anymore. I was told I would never, ever manage to survive without medication. Six drugs, four times a day. That's not in my brain anymore. My brain is clear. And the scarring in my brain, I must have absorbed it and cleared it and healed it. So it is phenomenal. And I don't tell my story lightly, Tatiana. I tell my story because I want to impart to the world that anything is possible. It truly is. We are magical people. We are magical beings, part of a magical universe. And It's all there to be tapped into. And you and I, Tatiana, can help people to tap into that if you don't feel that you've got that capability yourself. We are here to walk alongside people. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I I sadly also often see patients and clients who who have very advanced disease. And, um, you know, I always say, well, there isn't a single disease out there that has... um, a hundred percent mortality rate, even the worst disease, some one person will survive it. You know, we're going to do the very best we can to make sure you're that 1% or that one person. And there's no reason why, 
you know, believing in miracles is a good thing because miracles happen. They really happen. And one's sitting right in front of me right now. I'm very, very grateful for that too. It's <laughs> yeah. a wonderful story, an inspiring story. And I assume that that journey was part of the reason why you ended up becoming uh, a therapist so that you could actually really give back um, a little bit of what you've learned um, along the path. But that wasn't enough for our Rachel. And she's now actually going off to new um, horizons and actually taking her story on the road, so to speak. So you're, you're looking to address larger audiences. And I think that's a brilliant thing because I think stories like this are really inspiring and really need to get out there. Um, and also, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but I think it's massively important that these stories come from ordinary people, you know, you and me. I mean, you're not a movie star. You're not somebody who's unreachable and untouchable. You're a person that other people can absolutely relate to. You're just like them. And that's what makes your story even more powerful. So tell us a little bit about your plans. What are you, what are you aiming to do? Well, and that's so true, Tatiana, and thank you for, for that reflection. Absolutely. I'm an ordinary, honest-to-goodness girl. Um, I don't look like a movie star. And Well, you know, I'd argue that. But. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, is that's why I love talking about myself. A year ago, I wasn't ready to tell this story. I've, you know, I've done the work now, and I'm ready to tell my story. And what I plan to do is I plan to inspire and show people there is the way there is a way forward because it's your way through illustrating it through my life story and really allowing you into my space and into my experiences and my life so that you can actually identify with a part of yourself in my story because my story is so vast it reads like one of those far-fetched novels we only looked at a small portion of it today and so I can allow you to take a bird's eye view into many different forms of life experiences. And somewhere along the line, you'll be able to say, that's me. And then you'll be able to latch on to the positive energy and vibrancy that I have managed to harness through a very long period of recovery. This did not happen overnight. I'm the product of 10, 12 years of self-work. And I'm very proud of it. And now that I've got to the stage I'm at, I realize it's not enough for me to just have got where I've got to. I really, truly want to share. I truly want to help and inspire other people. So I'm inviting to people to contact me, to invite me to talk to your workforce, your tribe, your people, to bring my story to them so that they can be inspired to live a better, more positive life and encompass many other parts into their lives that maybe they wouldn't have thought of before because living life is extraordinary and everybody's life is extraordinary. It's just sometimes you need somebody else's life to, for you to see it in perspective and relativity to your own and that's really what I like to do. So I'm working as a therapist and love my work as a therapist and really enjoy every bit about it. But I'm moving also into inspirational speaking and bringing my show on the road happily with my cowboy boots in tow <laughs> and my past. And I've decided that I will be writing my book, which is oh, a wonderful advent. And hopefully next year it will be out. 
So. Well, we'll definitely have you back on the show when when the book's published. And uh, also, I mean, you you have a huge amount to to help other people with. Maybe for another another podcast in terms of dealing with loss. You mentioned at the beginning that mm. you had gone through two very severe tragic losses in your own family. And actually, um, I'd also be at some point in the future interested for you to come back and talk to us about how you dealt with your daughter's trauma because having a child experienced that. You know, already having lost a father and then seeing a mother go through that must also have been a huge amount of work for you to to deal with so we have lots of material I don't want to um disappoint people by not being able to talk to it but I would kind of like whetting their appetites for more <laughs> so um we're really almost at the end of our time dear Rachel it's gone so quickly could talk to you for hours but um one thing we always talk about on this show is the fact that good health and our well-being and living longer and healthy is all about looking after mind, body and soul. And my emotional pendants for that are to be healthy, happy and serene. So enjoying health, happiness and serenity. So just to wrap up, how about you tell us, how do you define health? What does it mean for you? Health for me is about being in your true self, being intrinsically you we're so encouraged this day and age to be somebody else and that stretches us out of our true nature and makes us and encourages us to use energy we don't have be your own judge be your own governor be your own mentor and most of all this is one of the things that I have really loved about learning on my journey is actually to be my own friend if you can have a relationship with yourself that is benevolent kind and supportive you don't need anything else because if you have a good relationship with yourself I like to look at it as a good marriage if your marriage isn't working, you have two choices. You can work on your communication levels and heal it, or you can agree to part. Now, I had a reflection this morning before I spoke to you, Tatiana, which was I actually was at the point of divorcing myself uh, through all of the, the trials and tribulations and obstacles and challenges. I actually wasn't talking to myself at all. I was existing. And when I figured out that actually if I began a relationship with myself, that my life would improve. And it is probably the best thing in the whole world if you want to be well, is form that relationship with yourself. You're only, you live with yourself all through from birth to the end. Form a relationship with yourself that is self-supporting. You'll find yourself going from strength to strength, truly. That's absolutely marvelous advice and I highly encourage everyone to follow it. And so how about happiness? What, what's happiness for you? What makes you happy and how do you find it? What I love now is the moment. And I don't want to sound like Buddha because I'm a pretty normal functioning woman who likes to be out there and have a glass of wine. But actually, the more I focus on this very moment... What is it about this very moment? Today, I picked fresh nettles with a glove and popped them in um, my teapot with a strainer and poured fresh nettle tea. A couple of years ago, that would not have seemed like gold dust to me, but today it does. Bring your mind back to the present. Bring your mind back to exactly what you have in this moment. And if it's not a lot, 
spend two or three minutes finding out what is the good bit. There is always a good bit, even if you're in the depths. There's one thing. It might be that biscuit. There's one thing. And just grow that sense of a tiny bit of happiness. It's not in the big things. It's not in the future. It's not in the past. It's only now. And if you can get in touch with that, you will truly find your way of being happy. It is only in the now. And serenity, how do you find that stillness, that peace within you? That's a lovely question. And not one I expected you were going to ask me. So I am <laughs> going to just quickly reflect on that. Serenity comes from the belief and the knowledge that actually we are part of a system. We're part of a massive energy system. We're not alone. We're not lonely. We are part of a huge, massive energy system. So serenity comes from feeling at home feeling that you belong, feeling that you actually have a life purpose, whatever it is, because you are invited to be a life form in this wonderfully large life form. I don't want that to sound complex. What it is, is really about recognizing that you are unique as a person. You vibrate as a unique individual on this planet with your wonderful characteristics, and you belong to the great big family around you, which is the universe, the trees, the water, everything. You belong to that. So you're not alone. So you can be serene in the knowledge that you belong. That's an absolutely beautiful way to finish this amazingly moving and powerful conversation. Thank you so much, for Rachel, for coming on. I really appreciate you taking time away from your very, very dear um, clients who I know absolutely love and adore you and that you help so amazingly well. And I'd really like to thank you for, for wanting to take this message out because I think it's a really important message and um, hope, I think, if we look around in our world today is something that's a little hard to find. Uh, we're surrounded by doom, despair, and a lot of fake news. So uh, a miracle, which is what you are in so many ways, is actually a wonderful thing to behold. And I'm very, very grateful Thank you, Tatiana. And we'll definitely have you back on again soon. Thank you so much, Tatiana. That means an enormous amount. And thank you for your gracious and kind words. It really, truly is a pleasure to be here and speak to you and have my voice heard. Because if we only help one person, that's just beautiful and that's perfect. And if I may be allowed just to say, if anyone does want to invite me to speak for them, you may get in contact with me. I really invite you to get in contact with me through my website, which is rachelgotto.com. Thank you so much. We'll include a link to Rachel's website in the text that accompanies this podcast for sure so you can get in touch. Thanks again, Rachel. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly did. It was a very powerful and moving story from Rachel and we'll definitely have her back on. And if you got something out of this, which I very much hope that you do, um, and you'd like what you're hearing so far from us, please subscribe, uh, leave a rating and review. It's very important because iTunes likes that very much so that more people can hear the wonderful messages that we're trying to spread here. And we'll see you all very soon on the next episode. And until then, Here's wishing you health, happiness, and serenity.